Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Mitchell Lichtman. Mitchell is a sabermetrician and co-author of the book, Playing the Percentages in Baseball. You can check out his website, mglbaseball.org, and give him a follow on Twitter at Mitchell Lichtman. That's L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N with one L in Mitchell. Mitchell, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you very much, Ross. I appreciate your having me on your show. Well, Mitchell, tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, um, I loved playing baseball uh, as a kid. Uh, I can't say that I was necessarily attracted by any of the particular number aspects of baseball, but um, played Little League just like uh, any uh, red-blooded American kid growing up in the 1960s. Uh, grew up on uh, Long Island. I was actually born in Queens and, and then moved to uh, Long Island when I was about four years old. So naturally, I was a fan of the Mets back then. Uh, my earliest memories of following Major League Baseball were the 1969 Miracle Mets and then later on the 1973 Mets, which uh, they won the pennant but uh, lost to uh, Oakland in the World Series, I think. In fact, in 1973, I, I think they still hold the record for the team with the worst regular season winning percentage that won a pennant may have been eclipsed, but as of, uh, I think, 2011, uh, that they held that record. But anyway, I mostly loved to play baseball back then, uh, Ross. Uh, played Little League uh, during the summer. I played uh, baseball or stickball uh, just about every day as a kid. And I think I had a vague notion of uh, the traditional baseball numbers back then, like all kids, batting average, RBI, home runs, ERA for pitchers, win-loss records, that sort of thing. But like I said, I, I don't remember having any particular obsession or inclination with uh, baseball numbers or the numbers on the back of baseball cards back then. It really wasn't until much later on that I that I sort of became enamored with and, and um, uh, obsessed with uh analytical questions in baseball and baseball numbers and um, sort of the Bill James getting at the truth in baseball, not accepting traditional uh, baseball wisdom uh, over the years. Well, what triggered it? Because I think we all grew up with uh, wins and RBI and, and saves for that matter. What triggered the interest in advanced metrics and how did you get into that area? That's a good question. Like I said, it didn't happen until uh, much later on. I was in my probably late 20s, early 30s. I was living in uh, Las Vegas, uh, which I still do part-time. I live uh, part-time in New York and part-time in in Las Vegas. Uh, Winters in Las Vegas, summers in upstate New York. Um, And I was living in Vegas uh, uh, starting in the uh, early 1980s. And actually, uh, I was playing blackjack. and uh, later on poker for a living. And uh, this is not very well known in the sabermetric community, Ross. This is kind of a scoop for you. But um, I started reading, and I'm not sure exactly why, but uh, I started reading uh, some of the early sabermetric books uh, like um, uh, Palmer and Thorne's uh, The Hidden Game of Baseball, of course, which I think was written in, what, late 1970s. So I started reading that uh, in the late 1980s. Uh, I started reading some of the Bill James abstracts. I think the Diamond Appraised uh, by uh, Craig Wright, and uh, I believe it was co-authored by uh, someone else as well. But and I had gotten the idea that maybe I can use a, sort of a sabermetric model to um, bet sports, uh, since I was already living in Las Vegas. Uh, 
sports betting obviously was uh, legal in Las Vegas, plenty of sports books, uh, and uh, I already had uh, quite ex- an extensive gambling background with respect to uh, blackjack and uh, and poker. And uh, so that's really what prompted my sabermetric interest, w- interest was the idea of uh, using a sabermetric model to uh, beat the sports books. Did it work? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, it did. It was uh, quite easy and lucrative uh, back uh, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, since then, it's uh, for various reasons, it's, it, it's become uh, less and less uh, lucrative, actually. Did those numbers only apply to baseball in sports betting, or could they have worked with other sports as well? Oh, absolutely could have uh, worked with other sports. Um, Baseball, uh, the, the the models that I used, and, and and lots of other people presently use uh, for uh, for baseball betting, sabermetric models, of course, uh, are, are very similar to what you might use in in basketball. Uh, not so similar to other sports uh, like uh, football or hockey or uh, even uh, soccer, but um, very much so. And there were I, I for a, a short while I uh, sort of um, uh, branched out a little bit into. Uh, NBA basketball, but uh, I was just so busy with uh, with the baseball work, uh, both in, in terms of the uh, the betting and and the uh, sabermetrics in general. Because I, I I sort of uh, wear two hats, or or did wear two hats. One was the the mainstream sabermetric hat, the other one was the uh, the betting hat, and uh, they were very similar. And you know there was a a, a huge crossover, but the they were very much uh, two separate hats, um, but uh, I was so busy between the, the two hats uh, uh, and, and baseball that I abandoned the, the uh, NBA stuff. Uh, have some regrets over that because there were some other people that uh, used some uh, very similar uh, models uh, for NBA and were quite successful, and uh, it was quite lu- lucrative for them. When you first started doing research for your book, Playing the Percentages in Baseball, was there a particular finding that surprised you? Very good question. Yeah, I think there were several. Uh, nothing that was shocking. Um, I would say probably two things come to mind, Ross. Uh, one was the research that we did on the times through the order penalty, which um, basically is that uh, the more that the hitters in a lineup uh, see the starting pitcher during the game, the more successful they become. So in other words, the first time that they see the pitcher through the order, the uh, Batters might hit. I'll use batting average just 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 to make it simple. But uh, you know, batters might hit uh, 240 or something like that. The second time that the same batters see the pitcher uh, in, in the uh, through the order, they might hit uh, 250. The third time they might hit uh, 260, etc. And I think we might have been really the first one to uh, sort of quantify that effect. It wasn't very well known. I mean, even, even traditional baseball people, managers would talk about that. You, you know, you'd hear that if you're watching a game sometime that, oh, you know, as the uh, batters get more familiar with the pitcher's repertoire and, and, and release point and what have you, uh, even if they've seen that pitcher before, you know, they tend to be more successful at the game as the game goes on. But I, I think we might have been the first ones to really quantify that effect. Uh, and I'm not sure I had ever really thought about that, and I'm not sure that I, I had ever uh, read about that before in, in sabermetric. Uh, writing or more mainstream writing. Uh, so that was very interesting. I don't know that it particularly surprised me. Uh, maybe the most surprising thing was the work that I did on the sacrifice bunt. Uh, I, I imagine I was probably in the same camp as most of the sabermetric people, which was that the sacrifice bunt was universally uh, an ineffective strategy, you know, a strategy that, that decreased the team's chance of winning the game rather than increasing it, uh, which is obviously what 
what managers and most players think. Um, so the uh, after um, some of the work done by Pete Palmer and some of the other guys, the the traditional sabermetric wisdom was that sacrifice bunts are just bad strategy. But after the research that I did for the book, uh, it looked like that that wasn't necessarily the case. That it very much depended upon the game situation, the batter, the pitcher. There was a lot of game theory involved in that. And the bottom line was that. In many, many cases, uh, sacrifice bunt attempts were an effective strategy that actually increased the team's chances of winning rather than decreased it, which, again, like I said, was a sabermetric wisdom at the time. So that was a pretty surprising result. And the chapter in the book that I wrote about uh, sacrifice bunting is a, is a, is a complicated, long uh, chapter, which is uh, very, very interesting, I think. I think uh, a lot of people that are uh, interested in, uh, in uh, baseball stats would uh, really enjoy reading that particular uh, chapter in the book. Since we know that batters adjust to pitchers and perform better with each additional time they see them, do you think we will see a point where the idea of starters and relievers just sort of become one and that a game might have eight or nine pitchers in one game where you don't want a pitcher to turn around a lineup more than once or twice? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's, that, that's kicked around from time to time in in, in different um, articles and things like that that you read uh, on some of the sabermetric sites and some of the things that I write, you know, that suggestion to man- managers that they do exactly what you're saying, um, it would appear that that would be a, a much more uh, efficient uh, a way of, uh, of uh, pitching uh, from game to game. And whether we'll see that, yeah, I think some of the more sabermetric-oriented teams will uh, probably tend to do that in the future, especially with their four- and five-starters. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about using like your four and five starters, uh, starters in, uh, like a, in a tandem basis. You know, to have your your four and five starters go uh, maybe once through the lineup through uh, five or six innings and bring in your relievers. Um, as far as you know, all teams using that kind of a strategy, I don't think that'll ever happen. But who knows what's going to happen in you know 40 or 50 years? I have no idea. Yeah, and the tandem starter seems like it could have been a solution to the Strasburg dilemma a few years ago. If they wanted to restrict his innings because they didn't want to overwork a young pitcher, that's understandable. If they had teamed him up with, uh, I think they still had John Lannon in the organization at that point, who was a perfectly reasonable number five starter. If they gave Lannon three innings on all of Strasburg's starts or four innings, whatever it was, uh, they probably could have got Strasburg into the playoffs. Yeah, that's a great example, and I think Lannon's a lefty too, right? So you'd even have the bonus of, of, you know, having a righty and a lefty going, uh, like you said, three innings each. So it would kind of put the other manager in a dilemma. You know, what, uh, who does he start? Does he start his, his righties, his lefties? And uh, if he uses, uh, you know, uh, both his righties and lefties early in the game, he you know, may not be uh, left with many pinch hitters at the end of the game. Mitchell, you created the defensive metric UZR, which Fangraphs uses as their defensive component on their site and with their war calculations. Tell me how UZR initially came to be. When I first started doing sabermetric research, and uh, again, it was geared towards uh, beating the bookies, um, I knew from the reading that I did that uh, traditional defensive metrics uh, were not very valuable. And we're talking about uh, basically just feeling percentage, you know, the number of errors that uh, each player makes. So I knew that I needed a better metric than that. So I, I kind of independently came up with a zone rating at uh, at the same time, Stats was was doing that and publishing it in their uh, Stats scoreboards. I think they started publishing that also in the maybe mid to late 80s. Um, a couple of other people had developed similar metrics to a Stats zone rating. 
I think uh, Sherry Nichols, Pete DeCourcy came up with something very similar called defensive average. I developed the same thing independently um, using play-by-play data that I got from uh, Project Scoresheet, which is now called Retrosheet.org. From there, I got the idea of using more granular data, expanding the zone rating, and calling it ultimate zone rating, which is not actually not my word, not my um, term. Uh, I borrowed that from uh, or stole it from uh, from stats. Uh, for some reason, they started computing and publishing an ultimate zone rating type stat in their stat scoreboard just for one year, which was a very good idea, very good metric, uh, and uh, they abandoned it for some reason after one year, and they didn't really even bring that back until they so the fielding Bible came out about five or six years ago, and they, and they started publishing uh, and computing their uh, DRS, defensive run saved, and plus minus, which is a, just another version of UZR. So I basically got the idea from uh, stats and uh, ran with it using the play-by-play data that I was getting from uh, Project Score Sheet, which later on became Baseball Workshop, which later on became uh, Retro Sheet. So that's basically the origin of UZR. I fully admit it wasn't my idea, and I owe a debt of gratitude to uh, John Dewan and uh, and the old stats, which is now BIS, of course, Baseball Info Solutions. Defensive metrics are often criticized for their unreliability. Where is UZR deficient in measuring a player's defense? You know, all stats, all metrics have a measure of unreliability. Uh, is, is UZR particularly unreliable? No, I don't think so. Um, the wisdom, conventional wisdom in sabermetric circles is that uh, UZR tends to stabilize after one, maybe one and a half seasons or so, which really isn't, uh, wouldn't be considered a particularly unreliable stat, not extremely reliable, like maybe a strikeout rate for uh, for a pitcher or even a batter or, or fly ball, ground ball uh, ratio for a pitcher. But um, where it's deficient, Ross, is in the fact that we don't precisely know where a fielder is located when a batter ball is, is, is put into play. And we also don't precisely know the location of each batted ball, even though the location is recorded by the uh, companies that, that record and disseminate the data. We also don't know the exact characteristics of the batted ball. The data company might call it a line drive or a fly ball, yet two batted balls that are called fly balls might be entirely different in terms of their their uh, hang time or air time, or, or one company might call a particular batter ball a line drive, and another company might call it a fly ball or even a, a, a flyner, which is a combination of a fly ball and a line drive. So we don't know the exact location and characteristics of, of each batted ball. We don't know the exact position of the fielder, and we have to approximate those two things. Now, in the long run, all the different positions that a fielder might have, depending upon the, the, the score, the game, the batter, the, the, the pitcher, all those things tend to even out, like with most metrics, uh, the, uh, the fluctuations in, in terms of the, uh, the information that we don't know tend to even out in the long run, but in the short run, they don't, which is why UZR um, and other defensive metrics and, and offensive and pitching, pitching metrics can be fairly unreliable uh, in the short run. Now, this is becoming a little bit more of a problem in terms of UZR because of the shifts. So when I say we don't know where the fielders are located exactly, yeah, that's somewhat of a problem in the old days when fielders, infielders uh, uh, especially, uh, they basically occupied uh, the uh, 
you know, the same position on the field across the board. But now we have so many teams employing so many different shifts, some teams employing shifts much more than other teams. Unfortunately, at the present time, UZR doesn't take that into consideration. So to tell you the truth, because of the uh, shifting that's being done, UZR in the, inf- in the infield is becoming a little bit obsolete. When you say UZR doesn't take it into consideration, does it just ignore plays where a shift is in effect? It does, really, unless it, uh, unless the data tells us uh, what kind of shift is being employed so that we know approximately where the infielders are playing. Uh, you know, traditional UZR algorithm is, is, is really useless. If, it, even if uh, UZR knows that there is a shift, it's really not very helpful unless it knows, okay, is the... You know, the third baseman uh, playing, um, uh, you know, on um, in the shortstop position, did they reverse themselves? Or is the shortstop playing uh, on the second base side of the bag? Is he playing behind second base? Is the second baseman playing in right field? Or is he playing in the infield, but he's just shifted over to the first base? But unless we know all that information, uh, UZR becomes uh, almost useless when a shift is employed. So right now, UZR ignores uh, any play where the shift was important, uh, where, the, where the shift made a difference in terms of the, the play, whether an out or, or was recorded or not. And that was perfectly fine two or three years ago. You know, may, there were maybe uh, 2%, 3% of all plays were shift plays. Now we have uh, 15 20%, and I'm sort of making up those numbers, uh, of the plays that, that involve the shift, especially with a left-handed hitter up there, maybe even more than that. Um, that, um, like I said, UZR is becoming less and less reliable because our sample size is decreasing since we're ignoring all shifted plays. Now, that's only for the infield again. Outfield, nothing's changed in the outfield. I want to get your impressions on MOBAM's new tracking system. Um, What are your initial thoughts of the system, and do you think that this system that does measure speed and velocity and distance to where the fielders are will effectively replace all of the currently available defensive metrics? It's amazing, the system. I, I certainly I haven't seen the nuts and bolts of it, um, but uh, it appears to be amazing. And yes, I, it will definitely replace, or it should replace. You know, sometimes old systems stay in place because of inertia for for whatever reason. They stay in place for a while, even though there there are better replacements. But um, yeah, it will eventually, and it should eventually replace all of these uh, old defensive metrics, UZR, DRS, plus minus, DRA, zone rating, total zone, et cetera, it'll be amazing. It'll be head over heels better than uh, all the, uh, the old uh, defensive metrics or the current defensive metrics. Um, whether that data will be available to the public either for free or for, for a licensing fee, I, I have no idea. Um, but if and when it does, then absolutely uh, – People like, uh, well, probably not myself because I'm on the verge of retirement, but, uh, you know, some of the young people that do great defensive work now will use that data to come up with uh, amazing uh, defensive metrics. I want to ask you one more question about UZR as it's also being applied to players from the early 20th century. Jack Glasscock has a huge defensive rating. How do we know that Jack Glasscock was really good at defense and how is UZR being applied to a player like that? UZR, since it uses... uh, Added ball location data, Ross, uh, you can't really apply at least the current version of UZR to uh, historical uh, uh, players, uh, you know, players from, uh, from the uh, mid or early uh, 20th century because we don't have that kind of data on them. But there are similar systems so like Total Zone, which, which is able to uh, infer batted ball data from, from various 
pieces of data that are available back then. Uh, I mean, basic stuff like the pitcher handedness, batter had handedness, the number of balls that were put in play, uh, which obviously can be inferred from uh, from uh, at bats and strikeouts and walks and what have you. So, using that data, they're kind of able to infer where batted ball, balls are hit on the average, and they're able to come up with a with a number that's similar to UZR, but not quite as granular as UZR. So I think, uh, like Sean Smith's total zone, which is what I'm talking about, uh, uh, can be applied to uh, players from uh, any era. And if you have a large enough sample size, uh, Ross, they tend to be very, very accurate. Uh, so I think those numbers that you're talking about, uh, especially if you have a fairly large sample size, three, four, five, six, or ten years on a fielder, can be very, very accurate and, and, and of course, much better than what uh, people used over the years to rate those players, which were just uh, fielding percentage, maybe uh, range factor or something like that. I also want to ask you about catcher's defense and what's the best way to measure a catcher's defensive ability? When you talk about catcher defense, you're talking about a number of things. Uh, you're talking about uh, preventing or um, the, the uh, stolen base. So you're, you want to look at a catcher's uh, stolen base and caught stealing numbers, and that's pretty straightforward. Uh, um, although there is some controversy over whether, for example, it's better to have a catcher that has such a good reputation, like a Pudge Rodriguez in the old days or a, or a Yachty uh, uh, in, the, in the present day, a Yachty Molina. Um, they have such good reputations that... Uh, potential base dealers just don't run that often against them, so they tend to have very low stolen base attempt numbers. So there's some controversy over whether something like uh, that is better or worse than a catcher uh, that allows, say, a modicum of stolen base attempts, yet he throws out a lot of base runners. In other words, base runners are not stealing against them in an optimal fashion. They're stealing too frequently. Um, But in any case... You know, we can get an idea of the value of a catcher's arm by looking at their stolen base and caught stealing numbers. One of the problems with that, Ross, is that it's been found that much of what you see in terms of a catcher's stolen base and caught stealing numbers is actually a function of the uh, pitchers that they catch. You know, some pitchers, by virtue of the fact that uh, they're very slow to the plate or they don't have good pickoff moves, they allow um, a very high... Uh, stolen base percentage or, or very high stolen base attempt numbers, and that gets put on the catcher, of course. So if you do look at a catcher's stolen base caught stealing numbers, you sort of have to adjust them for the, the pitchers that they catch. The other aspect of a catcher defense, uh, of course, is, uh, is uh, being able to um, block and catch wild pitches, bad pitches. And we have some real good metrics now that are able to use the pitch FX data to uh, value a catcher in terms of his blocking ability. So the pitch FX FX data tells us uh, whether a pitch is thrown in the dirt or, and if it's thrown in the dirt, you know, how far in front of the plate it bounces. And then we can look at uh, how often catchers are able to block that pitch and prevent a, a runner from advancing as compared to the uh, average catcher, sort of like a UZR for, for pitch blocking. And we have some very good numbers on that. Baseballperspectus.com has very good numbers on uh, pitcher blocking using pitch FX data. I'm sorry, catcher blocking using pitch FX data. Then we get into uh, the ones that have sort of been um, ignored uh, over the years because we just didn't have a real good way of measuring it, which is pitch framing and game calling. And I'm sure your listeners know a little bit about uh, the uh, new pitch framing uh, metrics, and those are fantastic. Again, those use pitch FX data. They look at uh, the exact uh, location of pitches that are thrown to each catcher and how often the catcher is able to sort of steal a strike uh, from the umpire. 
um, by virtue of his uh, pitch framing skill. And and again, those numbers are fantastic. Guys like um, Max Marchi and um, um, I'm blanking on some of the names, but uh, Mike. Yeah, Ben Fast. Ben Lindbergh does does a lot of that stuff. Michael Fast. Yeah, absolutely, yep, yep. And uh, some of those guys actually have been snatched up by teams. <laughs> somewhat by virtue of the great work that they've done with the, these catcher framing metrics. Uh, uh, Max got uh, snatched up uh, this year. Mike Fast, of course, is working for the Astros. He got snatched up a couple of years ago. And um, so those numbers you see, uh, you've got them, again, on baseball perspective. Uh, some of the guys on, uh, that are still working for BP are, are, are putting out great numbers uh, on catcher framing. And uh, what, what we found is, is, are two things, Ross. Number one is that um, that catcher framing very much can be measured, again, with some unreliability, like we talked about earlier. Um, but um, catcher framing numbers after uh, a season or two become quite reliable. The other thing we found is that, that there's an amazing amount of variability among catchers in terms of their catch, catcher, uh, catcher framing ability and in terms of the number of runs that they either cost or save uh, for their teams. And interestingly, we find that uh, teams nowadays are, are employing catchers less and less that are not very good at framing. Like, for example, one of the poster boys for just terrible framing was uh, Ryan Dumit, who used to catch a lot, and, of course, he, n- he never catches at all. He's basically just a, an emergency catcher now. Uh, he's more of a, what, a DH and a... First baseman, yeah. First baseman and a, and a pinch hitter right now. Is that, uh, uh, you know, teams either knew before or, or they're realizing more and more um, that uh, those uh, types of catchers, unless they're amazing hitters, just don't have much value behind the plate. Uh, framing can add or subtract two or three wins to a, a team's bottom line at the end of the season, which is an amazing revelation. Uh, somebody like, like a Jose Molina, who's a very light hitter, probably adds two or three wins to a, a team's bottom line by virtue of his framing abilities. And if, and if you watch him with, with framing in mind, it's just amazing to watch this guy frame pitches. He's, just, he's, he's unbelievable. You know, his, his quiet body, the way he subtly moves his glove, not trying to trick the umpire he's just incredible so in, in that case the uh, the numbers match the uh the eye test at least in my opinion mitchell you recently did a study on players who over or underperform their preseason projections and if their midseason projections are more predictive going forward than their actual midseason stats tell me about the study and the results you found from it yeah in fact i was just uh rereading a couple of uh, articles that i wrote on my own blog uh, about that and uh wasn't anything uh, surprising to me, but I think it was it was uh, pretty surprising and revelatory uh, to a lot of people who just look at midseason stats and just assume that that's the, the same type of numbers that they expect going forward. Um, and you know what you find is that once you incorporate current season or midseason stats, whatever you want to call them, whether it be one month into the season or five months into the season, once you incorporate them properly into your projection al- algorithm, and most of the projection systems do that, the good ones like Zips, like Steamer, like uh, Oliver, uh, like the ones that, that, that I use myself, my proprietary ones, which don't have a name because I don't really publish them. But once you incorporate those into your uh, projection system properly, the current season stats themselves, they become worthless. I mean, there's just, there's just no added value to looking at that. And what you find is that many, many, many players, especially pitchers, the, the the, the difference between their current season stats and their projection can be huge. You know, you, you can have a pitcher that's got a 4.9 ERA uh, halfway or even three-quarters of the way through the season, yet his projection 
might be uh, you know 3.5 or 3.6. Everybody thinks, oh, this pitcher's terrible. Uh, why is he still pitching? He should be relegated to the bullpen. You know, he should be moved down to your fourth or fifth starter. Yet what we find is if we look at that performance for the remainder of the season, how do they pitch? They pitch to the 3.5 or the 3.6 ERA that's projected, nowhere close to the 4.7 or the 4.8 ERA that they have halfway or three-quarters of the way through the season. So if you want to talk about how a pitcher or a team or a batter uh, is likely to do for the rest of the season, in other words, if you want to talk about how good your team is, not how good they have, how good they have been, uh, um, then you need to look at projections and not how they're doing during the season. A lot of people thought that that wasn't going to be the case so much for pitchers because pitchers get hurt, pitchers lose velocity, occasionally gain velocity. You know, they they scrap pitches, they add pitches, they, you know, change their approach. Yet we find um, what I'm saying to be even more so for pitchers, that projections are, are where it's at. You want to know how a pitcher's going to pitch for the rest of the season, look at his projection, and oftentimes that projection and how they've done during the season is extremely divergent, and that's especially true of bullpen pitchers who they're throwing 60 or 70 uh, innings for the entire season. So halfway through a season, each of your bullpen pitchers have thrown you know, anywhere from 20 to 35 innings, which is nothing. How they've thrown for those 20 or 35 innings is, is almost worthless information, and it's not going to affect the projection very much at all. You know, a, a reliever... Um, like, uh, I don't know, Joe Nathan or something. I mean, he's having some velocity problems. But uh, Joe Nathan, you know, he's, he might be projected to have a you know, 3.1 or 3.2 ERA. Halfway through the season, he's, he's around 4.5. Unless he's hurt or he's lost a couple miles an hour on his, on his velocity for some reason, that 4.5 ERA is, is meaningless. Uh, you know, he's thrown 30 innings. Uh, what we find is, is for the rest of the season, he, he's going to pitch to his 3.1 and 3.2 projected ERA. So this whole idea of, you know, demoting closers or moving starters to the bullpen uh, because they've had a bad ERA, a bad spate of performance, or, or giving uh, uh, players less playing time because they're, they're cold or more playing time be, because they're hot, it, it's nonsense. It's, it's just one of the many, 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 many misperceptions and mistakes that not only fans uh, make, but the baseball insiders like managers and TV and radio commentators make. What type of players do projection systems miss the mark on? Obviously, injured players could be one. They can't read an injury. But is there a type of player or a type of performance that befuddles projection systems? That's a great question. Um, you know, I thought about that a little bit last night, and, and my answer was uh, there are no players that projections miss the mark on. Uh, and when I say miss the mark, I'm not talking about the projection versus their actual performance because performance can vary considerably just by luck alone. But by definition, a projection is, is a projection. It's, it's, a, it's our best estimate. It's a, it's a, it's a human being's best estimate of uh, how a player is likely to perform for the next week, month, year, or what have you. Um, so, to, you know, it's, it's almost tautological that a projection cannot miss the mark, assuming that it's a, it, it's a good projection system and that it uses as much information as possible. Like you say, you know, an injured player is one that where, where it might miss the mark, but what if your projection system includes uh, injuries? Well, then if it includes injuries, it's not going to miss the mark on the injured player, whether it be the fact that, you know, he's going to be injured for the rest of the season, therefore the projection system sort of depresses the projection, or maybe he was injured and now he's healthy, so the projection system is going to increase the projection because 
the data that it's using from the past is based upon the fact that the player was injured and, and he no longer is. I mean, good projection systems nowadays, Ross, use, like, for example, for pitchers, they use pitch velocity in their, in their algorithms. So if a pitcher like a Verlander um, or even a Strasburg, you know, loses one or two or three miles per hour on his fastball, uh, it takes that into account. So now instead of projecting him, uh, you know, for a 3.1 ERA, it gets bumped up to a 3.2 or a 3.3 or, or, or what have you. So to answer the question, um, I don't think, again, by definition, projections miss the mark on anyone in particular. That being said, the less data that we have on players, the less reliable the projection is. Now, that doesn't mean that in the aggregate the mean is not going to be correct, but what it means is that the spread in performance or even the spread in true talent that the projection system is trying to project is going to be larger for players that we have less information on. You know, we could, if, I, if I told you that, uh, hey, I got a major league player, I'm not going to tell you who he is or anything about him, what are you going to project him to hit? Well, you're going to project him to hit 250, which is league average, right? But, and, and on the average, you're going to be correct, but, you know, he may end up being a 290 hitter or he may end up being a 220 hitter, but on the average, our projection is going to be correct. So more information we have on players, the more reliable that projection is. And to some extent, Ross, the older or the younger a player is, or maybe if he has a history of uh, injury, or even if he has a, a, a varied history, in other words, his, uh, the, the, the spread of his performance in the past has been large. So all those things might create for a less reliable projection. Again, even though on the average, if it's a good projection system, the projection on the average in the aggregate for all players that fall into that same category are going to be pretty much right on the money. I want to ask you about evaluating general managers. It's not something that's talked about that often, but I wonder if there's a way to truly evaluate the kind of job that a general manager is displaying. I don't think there is. I really, uh, I, I think, I think it's too complicated. It's too complex. There are many things about a team's success or failure that really the general manager has little to do with. He might take the responsibility for it in terms of the buck stops here, but uh, you know, is a general manager is is is, is he? Um, is he? Uh, he's not the one that goes out and scouts the players uh, for for the draft. Uh, um, you know, he's not the one that's uh, on the field. Uh, you know, developing players in, in the minor leagues. Uh, uh, he's not the one. Uh, he certainly has an influence over it, or he can. But he's not the one putting out the lineups every day, calling for sacrifice bonds or, or in, intentional passes. Or he's not the one. Uh, you know. Um, managing his bullpen. So there are many things about a team's success or failure that a that, uh, general manager only has sort of implicit or tangential responsibility for. Uh, so it's extremely complicated to evaluate a general manager uh, in terms of a team's success or failure. Um, and that's only one part of it. I, I, I say we can't because what are we evaluating a general manager for? Uh, what's a general manager's job? He's, he's essentially the CEO of a corporation. What is the uh, responsibility of a CEO for a corporation? It's to make as much money as possible, right? We're trying to evaluate um, a general manager typically in terms of the success of their team. And just because a team's successful doesn't mean that they're going to make money. And a general manager's job is to make money for his team. Maybe that uh, there are lots of teams that have been um, unsuccessful in terms of their win-loss record that have made money. And there are lots of teams that have been very successful in terms of their win-loss records that are losing money hand and foot. So how, how, 
you know, what's our criteria for evaluating general managers? Is it how much money the team's making? We don't even know how much money teams make. Is it the success or failure of the team? Well, maybe. I mean, maybe some general managers probably have uh, edicts from their, their owner or owners to, uh, to win, and some have edict, edicts from their owners to, uh, to uh, make money. Uh, so we don't even know how to evaluate general managers. So I think it's a fool there, and to be honest with you, we can come up with, with, with red flags and green flags in terms of good things and bad things that general managers do. Like, for example, Ruben Amaro signs Howard to Ryan Howard to a big, fat, long-term contract. Uh, any sabermetrician worth his weight in salt, and, and even less than that will tell you Ryan Howard's not nearly as good a player as you know traditional baseball people and fans think that he is. He, he doesn't have a, probably a very good long-term projection in terms of uh, his uh, uh, you know, aging skills. Uh, terrible signing okay we can say there's something about this general manager that's just bad he's just he's just terrible at evaluating players as, as far as all the other things that general manager does he may be great at it you know he, he may be great at um at uh, player development or a, a draft or or you know making money for his team but he you know he made a terrible decision with ryan howard so we know he was bad in terms of that one thing so so that's what we could do. We, we could pick out things here and there that say, oh, this was a great trade, this was a great signing, this was a terrible one, but that's only maybe, you know, 1% or 5% of, 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 of how we would like to evaluate a general manager. So I think it's a fool's errand. Yeah, and it's interesting that Ryan Howard contract, what made that so bad is I don't have any problem when general managers lock up players for the, to lock up their 20s, essentially. And not all of those investments work out, but at least you're buying a player's 20s. It's when these teams lock up a player's 30s that it makes no sense, especially when they're already under contract. Howard had two more years left on his deal before he signed that. Joey Votto had two more years left before he signed his 12-year extension. Justin Verlander had two years left. I mean, all of these big deals of buying out a player's 30s make no sense to me. I mean, you know, in the old days, of course, uh, and, and in a lot of these general managers, of course, we're, we're, we're sort of turning over a new, uh, new generation of general managers now um, in, in, in terms of being uh, sabermetrically savvy and, uh, you know, Harvard and Yale educated, what have you. But, you know, some of these older ones, they were, they, they were uh, raised uh, baseball-wise in a time when uh, people genuinely thought that uh, hitters peaked in their 30s. And that pitchers, you know, came up and they uh, pitched poorly for a while, and then they got better and better uh, as they uh, got more experience in the major leagues. And now we know those things are not true. Um, and you know, the difference between like Verlander and Votto um, and Howard was at the time the, the known information among smart people in, in, in and out of baseball was that Howard was grossly overrated because of his, you know, fat RBI totals and. Uh, and uh, his fat home run totals, uh, if you don't pay that much attention to defense and positional adjustments, the guy's a first baseman and, and not even a good first baseman. Uh, so to be a great player as a first baseman, you you got to hit like Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig or Miguel Cabrera, uh, not like Ryan Howard. He, he had a, a, you know, a huge platoon um, ratio, so he wasn't very good about, uh, against lefties. Now, Votto, yeah, I mean, he's having a terrible year, but still, this guy was... Um, you know, decent first baseman, um, one of the best hitters in baseball up until this year, and a lot of that probably has to do with his, his quad injury. And same thing with Verlander. I mean, here's a guy, one of the best pitchers in baseball. There's no particular reason we think he's going to get worse, uh, even though pitchers do tend to get worse after they, you know, reach their mid-20s or so because they lose velocity. But, you know, guy was a 
had no injury history, big, strong guy, would pitch, you know, 230 innings a year, threw the ball, what, 95 to 98. Occasionally he would hit 99, 100. Of course, now he's throwing 92, 93. That's the big difference with Verlander um, and Votto. Who knows? So I think you could distinguish those two guys from Howard, although your point is well taken about locking up those guys when they were already signed for two years, locking them up and, and, and owning them, you know, into their uh, mid-30s, which is not a great idea, and fewer and fewer teams are doing that, of course. Yeah, and I just think the point is be aggressive with players who are in their 20s and getting them signed and be patient with players who are in their 30s and, and wait till their contracts play out to see how they do. But before we wrap it up, I want to ask you about just how sabermetrics are perceived in general. It seems like every day we hear or see a former player or an analyst, a writer, a broadcaster just completely trash or dismiss sabermetrics or, or analytics in general. Why do you think so many people who have been around the game their whole lives are so reluctant to embrace new information and data? It's a generational thing. I, I, I think that exists in, in all areas of life, really. Um, I think it's mostly uh, they don't understand it, which is understandable. Uh, I don't disparage them for that. They don't understand. Lots of things I don't understand, and I can't have a conversation with experts in that field. So, that you know, I mean, they don't understand it, and they fear it. Human beings tend to fear uh, what they don't understand. They perceive it a little bit as a threat maybe to their their sport, their livelihood, which is not, of course, that's ridiculous. Uh, in, in fact, it's just the opposite. It's a, it, it's a boon <laughs> to, to, to baseball. So they don't understand it. They fear it a little bit. Um, and let's face it, base, sports analytics, sabermetrics for us, it's, 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 it's math. It's, uh, and, um, you know, most people, uh, especially people that have grown up in sports, they're pretty math illiterate. <laughs> so that's just a reason for... And a justification, and again, it's not a it's not a bad thing for for not being able to understand it. It, it it's math. Many people, especially uh, athletes uh, and you know ex athletes and people that have grown up in that in that industry or um, or, or work in that industry, uh, they're 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 not math oriented. They they don't understand it. And when you don't understand something, you you can you distort it. You uh, misunderstand it. You uh, and, and you fear it. Not everyone, obviously. And, and there's a growing trend, um, uh, you know, in, in the opposite direction to, 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 uh, to um, get more people in the industry that are math-oriented, that do understand that, and, and, and for uh, even baseball people. Um, lots of players now that, that embrace, understand, and, and utilize uh, sabermetrics. Uh, can't think of any off the top of my head, but, you know, some of the pitchers was like McCarthy, Brian Bannister, uh, Zach Greinke is very involved, Max Scherzer. Yeah, absolutely, Scherzer, yep. Um, and even uh, some of the hitters will occasionally talk about that, probably even Votto. You know, Votto's a little bit of a sabermetric darling, uh, and um, he, he, he even amazingly so. I can understand this year, but even prior to this year, as you well know, you'd have some of these uh, baseball guys and, and commentators uh, trashing Votto who is more than arguably or was, you know, literally one of the best hitters in baseball. Up there with uh, with the Miguel Cabreras and the and the, and the Trouts. And the reason why they were trashing him is because of RBI. Yes. Which that's that's still like 1960s. It's as if nothing has been published. That people are going on MLB Network, a, a network owned by Major League Baseball, saying that Votto isn't a good hitter because of his RBI total. Right, right, right. Yet he's you know he's, he's hitting second. <laughs> And you probably have, especially uh, the Cincinnati teams over the last five or ten years, they tend to have the uh, the low on-base guys batting uh, leadoff. 
like uh, the old Dusty uh, Baker days, and even now with uh, Billy ha- Hamilton, although he's getting a little bit better, you know, batting leadoff, even though he wasn't much of an of, of an on base guy. So I mean, by those opportunities, you're you're hitting in the National League number two with a low OB, OBP guy batting one. So if they're, uh, you know, to get any players on base, you got to have your eight, nine, and one uh, players get on base just to be able to have some RBI opportunities. And of course, his style of play is is, is just not uh, an RBI type of a of a guy. He's an on base guy with a little bit of power, and if he batted lower in the order, his power would produce a lot more RBI, obviously. But he's an OBP guy, and um, I mean, you know, nobody ever said that about um, you know like a Tony Gwynn or a Wade Boggs who. You know, didn't have a, a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, RBI in their day, but for some reason, some of these traditional baseball guys just don't like Votto. But un- unfortunately, he's having such a bad year that they're they're kind of uh, uh, fluffing their feathers a little bit, right? Right, and that's he, he just went on the DL again, and he might miss the entire year at this point. He might miss the rest of the year. So you have to hope that he comes back and that on base is a skill that ages very well, even though I think that contract was a mistake. I think any contract of a 12-year length, buying out a player's 30s into their early 40s is a mistake. He should be able to get on base at his normal clip when he comes back. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100% there. You've been listening to Mitchell Lichtman. Mitchell is a sabermetrician and co-author of the book, Playing the Percentages in Baseball. You can check out his website, mglbaseball.org, and give him a follow on Twitter at Mitchell Lichtman. That's L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N. Mitchell, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. 